This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. Welcome back to another edition of No Stop Lights. I want to thank our sponsors, Pepsi of Florence, Carolina Bank, Mickey Finns, Marlboro PD Electric Co-op. Have some new sponsors as of today, Francis Marion University, McLeod Health, McCall Farms, Victors, and PLC Commercial Real Estate. Um, real quick, uh, before we get to our guest, I want to explain we're in a different location doing a little bit different sort of podcast. Um, we're going to try and focus I would say hyper-focused, but maybe that's an, kind of a, uh, a bit of an overstatement. We're going to try to really focus on our local community and our region. Um, I host 20 hours of conservative talk radio. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. Um, we do well in the marketplace. But I don't know that we're genuinely serving the community. We're in a genre of entertainment, and, um, and it's, it's very entertaining. I mean, I'll level with you. It's a lot of fun for me to, to kind of back and forth and stir up some of the emotions of politics. But I made my mind up at some point in time in the last 60 days that I wanted to really dedicate some of my energy and, uh, and resources to try and make our community a better place to work, live, and raise a family. It's not like I'm running for office, but I'm not. But I, I genuinely believe that we can take this podcast we can shine a bright light on things that need to be um, talked about, concerns that need to be addressed, and, and celebrate and highlight some of the important attributes and assets of our community. Um, the first ever podcast of, of, I guess, the first time we've ever done the podcast in this particular studio, um, I went and sat down with Jamana Swimmer at McLeod Health, and I said, Jamana, I need you to help with this podcast. It's not going to be an extension of conservative radio. I know that makes businesses uh, nervous, and I understand that. I respect that, um, but, I, but I'm going to try and um, create something out of nothing that I think the community can be proud of, and I need you guys to be supportive. They were. They signed up to be a part of this, and with us today is our first ever guest, on um, the newest iteration of Wake Up, excuse me, of Tim Stoplights, I knew I'd say that sooner or later, is Donna Isgett, President and CEO of McLeod Health. How are you? I'm doing well, Ken, and it's an honor to be the first guest. Well, it, it, it's an honor now. We'll see how you feel in about, in about 30 minutes or so. So you are the first female CEO of a hospital system in the history of South Carolina. To my knowledge, I'm the first CEO, female CEO of a hospital system in the state of South Carolina. I certainly know when I sit at the table, it's usually with a lot of men. <laughs> uh, okay, I grew up wanting to be the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers and then a starting pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Women don't normally aspire to be president of hospital systems. I'm not saying the glass ceiling has been broken. They shouldn't try and reach for that. But, but I guess the cliff note version, Donna, how did you get here? Where do you come from, um, and, and and kind of the once again the cliff note version of what led you uh, to be the CEO, president and CEO of a of a major hospital system in South Carolina? Okay, Ken, I have to be totally honest. Mm -hmm. I didn't aspire to okay. be the president and CEO okay. of a health system. Uh, I'm a nurse. Uh, I am a country girl from Cedartown, Georgia. Okay. Uh, grew up there. Always wanted to go into nurses nursing, but what I knew is I wanted to help people. What I've also done, the reason I say I'm a country girl, I'm a horse girl, I put my head down and just do a good job. I'm a good, good old plow horse, as I call it. And so that's what I did. Quite frankly, the only real job I ever applied for at McLeod was the first one 27 years ago. And then what would happen is someone would tap me on the shoulder and say, would you take on this? 
would you be interested in this? Could you go be our chief quality officer? We want to differentiate ourselves on quality. So we did so at a national level, uh, the difference we were making from a quality standpoint. I did that for a while, and then we needed a leader of our physician organization. And they tapped me on the shoulder and said, the physicians know you. They trust you. Would you go run our physician organization? So I did that. And then they tapped me on the shoulder and said, our chief operating officer, we need a chief operating officer for the health system. Would you do that? So I did. And then our president and CEO said, I think you should be the president and CEO. So I interviewed with all 23 of the board members at one time. Uh, and very transparently, even in that interview, I said, if what you're looking for is the person that knows all the right answers, I'm not your person. If what you're looking for is the person that can amass a team that will get to the right answers, that's me. And I said, your job is the boards to decide what you're looking for. And I tell that whole story to say, I didn't have this aspiration. I didn't have a final goal in mind. What I had was service in mind. So, so what about health care intrigues you? I mean, it, a lot of us are confused, intimidated, don't can't make heads or tails. We get an insurance statement. We go to the doctor. I mean, it, it is such a confusing world, and it really makes people of average intellect like me feel a bit stupid. What what drew you in to healthcare? So I had a first cousin that was a nurse, and I took care of her children when she was going back to get her baccalaureate degree in nursing. And when I would hear her talk about her daily life, it made me understand that's what I wanted to do. So I was a clinical nurse for a long period of time. I mean, I, I worked in the emergency department. Then I did Aravac nursing. And quite frankly, I loved it. I, I still find some of that is my most important work that I did. But it was about I could have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with that patient and I was making a difference in a critical time in their life. Whether that critical time was a happy time, having a baby or doing some work, usually not a happy time. An unexpected trauma, a heart attack they didn't think they would be having, all of those things. But I could make a difference. And that's different than if I'm, you know, I, no disrespect, than if I'm, flipping hamburgers for a living. It's just different to have that kind of impact on human life in that critical time. And that's what I was drawn to. I've always just had a caring spirit and that's what drew me into the work. So, so, so help me understand the process of getting from taking care of people to the business of healthcare. It's a humongous business. It consumes a large percentage of our GDP. Some people wish we did it this way. Some people wish we did it that way. Um, I built truck beds for a living. That is a very tangible issue. It's, it's very identifiable. A 16-foot flatbed looks like this and costs this much. But nobody's life is on the line. We're not bringing new babies into the world. So when you talk about healthcare, you are saving lives. You are delivering newborn babies. But it's still a business. There's still a bottom line, that there's still a responsibility you have, I got to believe, to the custodian, as a custodian of the public trust. How do you meld or merge the, 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 the humanistic aspect of healthcare and the business? You know, Ken, I think that's what helps that I grew up in it. 
So I went from a bedside nurse with an associate degree and then a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree in nursing and then went on and got an MBA at Duke. But growing up in it, I learned incrementally the different things about the business side. You're right. It has to be a vision, a business. If there is no margin, there is no mission. Now, we don't try to make that a big margin. As a matter of fact, we try to get 3% because we need 3% margin to give annual raises and buy needed capital equipment. So we're not trying to go make 15%. We're a private, not-for-profit healthcare system. But you do have to understand the business dynamics. But because I worked at the bedside, like recently, some of the nursing crisis that we had, I understood that differently from a business perspective, but and from a nurse's perspective. I understand it. I start my morning in the morning with the surgeons at McLeod Regional Medical Center at seven o'clock. Understand that differently because I've passed off those trauma patients to surgeons before. I've been in the operating room. I still go. I still own a pair of scrubs that I put on and wherever we are having challenges, that's where I show up in my scrubs so that I can see it firsthand and I can understand it. It would be just like you're talking about with making truck beds. I bet you did some of that yourself. Sure. So you understood the business differently because you did it. Uh, it's, it's sort of that grassroots development of what you're trying to lead. I'm not a professional hospital operator. I'm a professional caregiver that then grew up in the hospital system to help operate it. Does that make sense? Sure does. Okay, let, let's let's get to the weeds there for a second. And and some will understand this and some will not. And I know enough to be dangerous having spent some time in politics. We don't have a private sector health um health healthcare model in America. We don't have a government run healthcare model in America. We're kind of caught between um the two. Um you know, I, I remember my time in Columbia, the Medicaid match. What was a big to-do with Governor Haley and whatnot? Should we take the Medicaid money or, or should we not? Now the body politic is talking about Medicare reform. You know, can we sustain the current model? Um, how in tune do you have to be into a world that, that doesn't understand health care but has a tremendous amount of influence on your ability to provide care and 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 how much you're reimbursed in, in regards to that care. You, you see where I'm headed. I mean, am I right to say it's not a, a private sector model, but it's not a government model? It's somewhere, it's somewhere in the middle. Does it frustrate you to, to, to be in a business that is at the mercy of people who aren't practicing health care? It does frustrate. Uh, it, it is complicated. It's so hard to explain what we do, but more importantly, it's even harder to explain how it's financed. So first and foremost, we're spending right now about 20% of GDP on healthcare. I too am worried, is that a sustainable part of our GDP? Is it going to continue to grow? How do we do it for less money? The problem with it being this governmental, private, or not insured at all model is everybody wants it all, but they don't want to pay for it all. And it's cross-subsidized very transparently. This will really get you going. We don't, we can't provide the care for what Medicare pays us. We certainly can't provide the care for what Medicaid pays us. 
So you get cross subsidies on the commercial side to then help pay for the whole thing. Uh, what you see in some of those governmental countries, even in Canada, even though it looks like it's all governmental, there's still a private sector in the in the UK, in Canada, there's still those that are getting, so you get a, a minimal health care provided this way. You might get a hip replacement in two years if you're on the list, but there's still some private sector. But how we finance, where I'm going with that, how we finance health care in the United States makes it very convoluted. And it makes for a health care system a real struggle because we don't we don't control much of our revenue. The only lever we can pull on revenue is on the commercial side. The government does not negotiate with us about what they're going to pay us. They just tell us. It's kind of like our tax rate. They don't negotiate about what your tax rate is. They just tell you. Same thing for, for a healthcare system. So it, it, it's a much more complicated business to run and operate than those that can just go up on their prices. We've just gone up on what we had to pay for our employees because of inflation. But I can't turn around and pass that increase on to 65% of the payer source, which is governmental. 65% of our patients are government. When when the government begins to make determinations, the government is not one person. It's a bunch of people making a bunch of decisions. But when the government decides to do X, Y, or Z with Medicare or Medicaid, do they ask people like you for advice? Should they ask people like you for advice? So they do put out, uh, here's pot proposed policy and we'll take a comment period. Um, so they do that. So I, I think you could think of that as asking for advice. Uh, that's where politics gets in it. Sure. Though, because sometimes the loudest advice comes from the pharmaceutical industry, comes from insurance companies. Insurance companies. You have to remember what, what's the purpose of the insurance company. It actually is to make a profit. Um, so it comes, they lobby oftentimes better than we actually do in a united force as a hospital system. Also, remember, there's a segment of hospitals that are for profit. So Hospital Corporation of America actually serves in this region, uh, more at the coastal part of this region. Their purpose is to make a profit. They do that by providing health care, but you find that that's a very different operation than one that's a, either a governmental of some sort or a private not-for-profit. And it sounds to me that you understand the insurance companies fighting for their share of the pie. You understand the pharmaceutical companies fighting for their share of the pie. You understand the for-profit hospitals fighting for their share of the pie. They have shareholders. They have a fiduciary responsibility to those shareholders to try to be as profitable as they can. Uh, let, let's go down this road, if you don't mind, because I've always wanted to speak to someone like you about this. If I'm a safe driver, I get a safe driver discount. If I take really good care of myself, I don't, I'm not rewarded in the insurance marketplace. Should I be rewarded? I mean, that's not your decision to make, and I understand and respect that. But as someone who runs a a, a really big hospital system, should we look at alternative ways to reward people who take good care of themselves and, and, and I guess, charge extra for those who choose to not? So there is some federal thought about that. Uh, it's 
once again, not my decision to make, but sure. there has been some federal thought around if if you take care of your weight, if you uh, do these things that reduce your chance of cancer, if you then that should be rewarded. Maybe the care should be different for that. But that's a really hard federal sale to elect for elected officials because the minority are probably those that take care of themselves and who have to make those guidelines are usually elected officials. So the likelihood that you'll ever see a sale of something like that is unlikely. Uh, should it be? Maybe. We've got to do something to cut the cost. Is the current model broken down? I mean, are you willing to say that? Is it in need of... I don't. I mean, I know we're always trying to make it better, and I applaud what you've done because it seems to me that you've always tried to innovate and create better ways to do X, Y, or Z. But but a large share of Americans who pay real close attention and go back to that twenty percent GDP number, they are concerned that the current model is not sustainable. They just don't know what to do. It's not sustainable. It if you continue to see the well, let me back. Let me back up. The American people need to decide if it's sustainable. Because that 20% may go from 20% to 22 to 23. So in the ultimate end, it is the American people that will have to decide, is it sustainable? In my mind, I struggle with its sustainability. Uh, I struggle that respectfully, we probably waste uh, resources at the end of life that have no appreciable impact in my life. So let me use my own father as an example. Won't even be at McLeod Health. Uh, my own father in another state. My father was at the end of his life. I knew that. I was a nurse. I knew that he was at the end of life. They call me from the hospital. We've got to put him on a ventilator. We've got to do these things. And I go, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? He's, he's going to die in the next few months. We probably spent $200,000 on him. And made him miserable. But the way the rules read, they had to do that. They asked him, quote unquote, do you want us to do everything? Well, Ken, what are you going to say? Sure. When you're the one that's, and I couldn't reason with them that this was not what he wanted. So who should make the determination at end of life care? We should make that determination way before we're in the critical moment. That's the key. So don't wait until you're 85 to downsize out of the 5,000 square foot house. Do it when you're 65, knowing that 85 is, is down the road. And also, just like when you and I are in this health, we should declare and make sure we have good legal documents that say, I, if my the end of my life, I have these documents. The end of my life is just going to prolong my suffering. Please don't continue it. Don't don't give me artificial ventilation. Don't don't do those things that are just going to prolong the inevitable. But we've got to get really comfortable to have those conversations at our age. So so why have we not gotten comfortable with having that conversation? Sarah Palin got chastised for death panels. In, in, in retrospect, I mean, I, I'm not giving her the credit that she completely understood the issue, but but wasn't she, uh, you're a country girl, wasn't she barking up the right tree, so to speak, 
in, in beginning that conversation. I mean, that's a complicated, difficult conversation for people to have. So, Ken, in my opinion, she was barking up the right tree. It's just so difficult because you get a little tagline, just like I may have just gotten one, a little tagline that people think, oh, it's just about not, it's about withholding care. It's not at all. It's about being respectful at the end of life. It, it wasn't respectful for my father. And I certainly understand that. And other people in healthcare have they tried to explain to me the enormous percentage of healthcare dollars we spend at the end of life. I mean, it's a staggering percentage of healthcare and a place that we could start creating a more sustainable model. In my humble opinion, it is the most important place to start because it doesn't make an appreciable difference. That doesn't mean when you have something that's potentially curable or if you have care that you can give that can give extend meaningful life, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about uh, somebody with breast cancer, maybe me one day, that even if you know the most you'll get to five years, that's still five years with my kids and maybe my grandkids. I'm talking about what my father had in those last 30 days that had, he didn't even remember me being there. That's what I'm talking about. When Medicare was established as law of the land, the average life expectancy was about 69.6 or seven years. We're living about 11 to 12 years longer today on average. You care to give an opinion about the eligibility age and what we should do in regards to Medicare? Mm. I mean, that, that, there's not a silver bullet, I accept that. There's not a one size fits all solution, but the reality is as we live longer, we become more expensive liabilities on the, on the Medicare system. Well, and I think we'll have to work longer. Very transparently, as you can probably already tell, I'm pretty high energy. I, I love that imagine. answer though, that, that is the right answer. You have to work longer. And so you don't need it as as quickly as you would because you're healthy longer. It doesn't mean you now get a longer retirement. It means you just shift things. I have every intention of continuing to work as long as I'm healthy. Now, the moment I'm not, uh, particularly in the role that I do, I have multiple people that are beside me that I have made them commit. If you see me slipping, if you see me not on my game, you owe it to me and more importantly to the patients in this organization to tell me so that I can step aside and allow something else. But I have every intention of, of working another decade. Speaking of workers, let's get employees if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I gotta believe that running a hospital in Honolulu, it's easy to find workers. A lot easier than Florida, I mean, South Carolina. A hospital in New York. I mean, but 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 we have, um, we have a a healthcare system in Florence that is unlike any community our size. One of the remarks or comments I hear from people who travel to Florence is, "Wow, well, I'll, I'll say it, we're on a podcast. Damn, what a hospital you guys have." I mean, good land, or am I in New York? Am I in Los Angeles? Walk me through the process of recruiting physicians and healthcare professionals and then retaining them once they get here. So, so sort of a couple of different things with that. One, when we're talking about staff as a whole, 
We believe how you do that is grow them. You grow them locally. Uh, the most likely to stay are those that have ties that already exist here. Uh, it doesn't work quite as well with physicians because you you have more than you're probably going to be able to bring back on the physician. But for for the nurses, for the lab techs, for the engineers, for we believe in grabbing them. We're even doing very robust things now, reaching into the high schools and giving them a path forward. We can be your permanent employer for you, the rest of your life, and you can move up in the system. You can come in as a nursing assistant and finish as a, a nurse anesthetist if you want to, finish as a doctor if you want to. But we believe in developing that through a pipeline in our own communities because it's more than Florence we have to recruit to. We have Sherall, we have Manning, we have Dillon, we have Loris, we, you know, we have campuses. The coast is pretty easy, so seacoast isn't so difficult, but we have multitudes of areas that we need to stand. So that's plan one is grow them. Get into the high schools, grow them. We want to improve the health and well-being of the region we serve. The best way to improve the well-being is gainful employment and a lifetime job that has good benefits and, and is a good culture. And Now, on the physician side, we try to do the same. So we, we tag on, you know, Dr. Hannah is a perfect example, one of our orthopedic surgeons. He grew up right here. We have, I guess I can say it now, Hugh Wilcox is coming back to practice general surgery right here. You know, if you can grab somebody that has roots to this community, then it's wonderful. Uh, we have, we try to track them when they're leaving to go off to medical school to keep our eye on them. But the main way we work on it on the physician side is to be a different place to practice medicine. The reason I'm up at seven in the morning to meet with those surgeons and I meet with other groups is I want to hear how can we be a different place? How can we be the place that you would prefer? I think one of the greatest compliments to McLeod Health are the physicians that have left us and come back. Brian Wall recently returned, cardiologist. Saw him at the uh, Radiothon. He came by nearly every morning that, that we were there. The best testament to McLeod Health is these really good docs that leave and come back and go nothing's like home. So when you talk of education and when you talk of the pipeline and when you talk of growing healthcare professionals here in the community, how important is the collaboration? How extensive does the collaboration need to be with technical colleges, with Francis Marion University? You mentioned the K-12 program. Um, I mean, when did McLeod make that commitment and, and why do you think it's so important? We've gotten, so we've had a commitment for at least over a decade where we've actually helped with the colleges, particularly in nursing, uh, with Florence Starlington Tech, with Francis Marion University, Dr. Carter and I, now Dr. Floyd, uh, uh, Dr. Ford out at uh, Florence Starlington Tech. But we've had that for a long time where we've helped partner on educational events, particularly for nurses. We've had to get much more aggressive with that coming out of the pandemic. Ken, I'm not sure the general public understands what the pandemic meant to the healthcare providers. Explain, please. Um, they watched their friends die. It's one thing to, to watch maybe their neighbors die. It's another to watch your friends die and we couldn't stop it. Because early on in that pandemic, we, we weren't even certain how it spread. And so you had to come to work, many of them that wouldn't even go home to their families. 
because they were afraid to expose their children because they slept in garages. They slept in campers. They, Well, that's a lot of stress. It's different than if you're just out on the street. It's a whole different thing that you're having to care for a COVID patient. Did people leave health care oh, and will never come back? Absolutely. And you understand that? All across the nation. Absolutely. All across the nation. And so the reason it's different today, we have to regrow all of that that left. The state of South Carolina, in addition to all of that stress the whole nation has gone through, the state of South Carolina is expected to be either number two or number four, depends on which study you read, on the most nursing vacancies in the United States by 2030. That's because we've become a U-Haul state. That's a great thing. It's all the growth that's coming into the state. One says we'll be number two, second only to Alaska. One says we'll be number four, and there are a few others ahead of us, and, and three of us others ahead of us in the list. Either way, if we're going to meet the healthcare needs of this state, we're going to have to grow them. And so the intensity of working with the high schools, the intensity of working, I mean, Dr. Carter, Dr. Ford, also at the beach. It's not just here locally for us. I mean, we're on speed dial with each other and figuring out how do we partner, how do we make healthcare careers a place to choose. But once again, don't forget, we also need the IT people and the plumbers. And the Is the employee deficit a crisis in your mind? It's... I wouldn't say it's a crisis for McLeod Health now. We've done some pretty remarkable things since the first of the year. Quite frankly, sir, we've hired 1,700, I mean, 715 new nurses. How dependent, I'm interrupted, but how dependent right. on contract labor were you? And how has that evolved as, uh, um, as we've gotten further away from the pandemic? So one of the decisions we were, we were, I think at the height, we had 260 contract laborers, somewhere around in there. Uh, because you had to. Because we chose to. Okay. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The way some healthcare systems handle that is they stopped and reduced services. So they closed floors, they closed beds, they they closed units, they, they we'd served this community for 117 years. And what am I gonna do? What are you gonna do? Right around the block trying to find a place to go? So we felt like we owed it to the community. We did owe it to the community to continue to serve the way we had for 117 years. So even though at the time we were losing money, I put no governor on the amount of contract labor we would hire because our duty was to serve. And so we would have to spend what we had to spend to make sure we had enough care providers to serve. So we made a conscious decision. That's not a decision everybody made. So we did it because we felt like we needed to serve. Uh, but we have seen uh, greater than, actually we've reduced contract labor in half since the beginning of this year, uh, not just since the peak. In, in doing it by recruitment, really assertive recruitment, making it different, make ourselves a different place to practice medicine like I talked about, but a different place to be an employee. Uh, really tried to celebrate them. We were trying to give them support. Many of these people trained in the pandemic, so they didn't get as much hands-on. So we're doing internships and residencies, even for nurses. 
so that they have a hand to hold while they're coming on, uh, just trying to be a different place. You mentioned Seacoast. Um, I've seen the campus here, but the reality is the PD region is largely rural. I mean, there's no question about it. Maybe this podcast is no stoplights. I'd, I'd attribute to my hometown, Pamplico, with no stoplight. What, how significant are the challenges to healthcare in rural America? They are real and they are significant. As we cut funding, and I want people to understand this, I mean, it's easy for a conservative Republican, such as yours truly, to say cut spending, cut funding, do this, do that. But you begin to put rural America in jeopardy in relation to health care. Explain that if you don't mind from your perspective. Well, okay, let's go back to my clinical training. I'm an old air nurse, an old trauma nurse, flight nurse, did air vac. There is a window of time to save someone's life when they're in an emergency. If you start cutting the care and that's simply not available, they simply won't live. That heart attack that happens in Cheral, if there were not a hospital over there, would not survive to get to the closest. If it's if it's a truly widowmaker, as we call them from a clinical side, if it's a true widowmaker, they probably won't make it. They won't be able to start the care that's needed. If that trauma that is that is a trauma that's bleeding out or something like that, there is a golden hour. There's a golden hour in cardiac care. There's a golden hour in, in trauma care. And if you don't have access to those things, you simply won't make it. But what else you'll see is the whole town will die. Figuratively, maybe not literally in their death, because if you don't have a place to get health care, people don't want to live there. And so they'll start leaving those no-stoplight towns. I kind of grew up in one of those two, Cedartown, Georgia. We had a couple of stoplights, <laughs> but not many. Uh, but but you'll, you'll start leaving there. The town will wilt and die. And that'll be such a sad loss for us. But very concretely, People could die without access, at least to that emergent critical care. How have we changed our certificate of needs process? There was a day in my political life that some of the most powerful people in South Carolina government were on the DHEC board. And it went to CON, certificate of needs. Um, Is it different today? Should it be even more different than it is now from your perspective? So it is different today, but not in the way that hospitals would have wanted it to be. Uh, remember when we started this conversation, I talked about how the funding was perverse and the only thing we really could control a little bit was the commercial funding, but we're really at the mercy. Governmentals pay us what they pay us. Remember I also said we're trying to eat by a 3% margin. The other thing that's perverse about how we're paid is it's not paid based on cost at all. So a medical patient, that stroke patient, we lose money on all of those, probably the commercial ones too. We make the money on some procedures. So how you're even reimbursed within the specialties is very different. So now we've taken away the certificate of need necessity for everything but a hospital. And in 2027, it goes away for a hospital. So what do you think the for-profits are going to do? They're going to poach everything that you're making a little margin on and take it out. That's exactly what's happened in other states. 
They take out the things that make a profit and they leave those stroke patients. They don't care about the stroke patients. So, so what the congestive heart failure patients, the stroke patients, those medical, the renal failure patients, the medical patients that still need care. So then that's when you start to see the demise of your small rural hospitals because right now what supports them are McLeod Regional Medical Center and Seacoast. That's the way we can keep those open. But if you pull out what little profitability we have in those institutions, it's a, it's a business issue. And you just won't be able to offer it all. What worries me for America is it'll be that quiet access reduction that the general public doesn't think about. And what I mean by that is we're getting more and more advanced in the things we can do. We won't be able to afford to do them even though we can. And you as the Joe Blow public won't recognize that I just don't have access to that particular cardiac procedure because it costs too much. The, the disadvantage of being a nurse and understanding it clinically and being the leader of the hospital is I do understand it. And we'll have to make decisions. Hard decisions. Hard decisions, Ken. That's why I hate we gave over the healthcare system that will then start to be raped of the things that could at least do a margin to support the things that yeah, do. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, that, that would be a concern, no question. If I were sitting near shoes, that would be one of the biggest concerns I have. How concerned are you with ER overuse? Certainly you see that. Uh, unfortunately, what you see much of that overuse is because they don't have access any other way. So I wouldn't, you and I don't overuse the ER. You know why? We have primary care docs. Uh, we have access. We we have access any way we want it. We can go to the urgent care. We can pay the copay. We can, we can go to our, we can call up the primary care doc. They'll see us. It's the people that don't have any other access uh, that really are the ones that drive that overuse because they don't know how else to get care. Is it a financial burden for the health system? Sure, absolutely. Because you're given the highest cost uh, care to patients that don't need that level of care. But don't know anything else to do other than go to the ER. They don't have anything else they can do. Now, it's where I will praise Hope Health. Hope Health does a great job as a federally qualified health center in this region uh, to take care of those patients. That is, they are compensated differently from the federal government to give that primary care based on the patient's ability to pay. And the partnership that we have with them in our ability to try to help those patients have a different access. But many people don't know about that or they're afraid to approach it that way. They'll just hit the easy button with the ER. Donald, but they're great partners. Donald, last question. And, and I, I, I'm, I got to pin you down on this one. This is, I say, the hardest one for last. <laughs> I study politics pretty religiously. One of the concerns I have, you mentioned the growth in South Carolina. Depending on what data points you trust or believe in, we're one of the five fastest growing states in America. A, a large share of that growth is along the coast. I went to a sports bar Saturday and nobody had the Georgia-Florida football game on. It was Michigan State and somebody or Notre Dame and somebody. It ticks me off. But anyway, that's a, that's a story for another day. 
Uh, a large part of the McLeod footprint is along the coast. You mentioned sea coves, so the coastal areas of South Carolina. Um, I, I guess I'm asking for <laughs> a, 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 a promise that the hospital here in Florence will not be adversely affected because I get it. I mean, assets are limited. Resources are limited. Um, mixer pay, I've read some of that. I mean, I understand that the, I think Horry County is plus 48 a day and has been for the last six or eight or 10 years. So I'm no fool. I'm no, I'm no moron. I mean, I tell Jay Jordan, Philip Lowe, Mike Rickenbosser, but the other political friends of mine, there could be a day in South Carolina that 35% of the state Senate is from five counties. One of those counties is Horry County. How, how concerned are you that McLeod will shift resources, not create new resources, but shift resources from what I'll call the PD to the Grand Strand. 117 years confident. We started here. It is our mission. Uh, we have a regional board of trustees. What I mean by that is that we purposefully have a board that exactly represents the region that regions that we serve. And so they keep us honest in that. Um, we have very transparent conversations. If anything, our growth at the coast will help us keep Manning open. Our growth at the coast will help us expand in Sherrall. It'll give us that offset because we are not a hospital operating company. We're a local not-for-profit healthcare delivery system. We're not trying to make a 10% margin and send it to those stockholders. We're trying to care for this region that we've cared for for 117 years. And what I can commit to you, as long as I'm in this seat, which I'm contractually obligated for quite some time, as long as I'm in this seat, we'll stay focused. But better than me, it's that regional board of trustees that will force us to stay focused on the region. 55% of the care we deliver still takes place in McLeod Regional Medical Center. About 25% of it is taking place in the coastal region and the rest in our rural hospitals. So I, I don't see any indication. Uh, we're having our board retreat here locally in Florence again this year. That's where the board will, will meet for their two-day meeting is it right here in this region. I don't see any indication that we're going to shift from that commitment to the PD region, just like we've had it with its headquarters, corporate headquarters here in Florence for 117 years, anytime in the foreseeable future. We, you know, we still have Dr. McLeod's name associated with us. And for what it's worth, I second that motion. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Donna Isgett, thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.